Thank you, Michelle. I asked the Lord to take my life. It was too much for me. These are the words of a Christian pastor in Vietnam. He had begun to minister in the north of the country and soon found his ministry going better than expected and began to uh, capture the attention of the authorities in the north of Vietnam. He was arrested and taken to a training school, a prison, for three years. He shares his experience. He says this, After my arrest, I was put in solitary confinement and chained to the ground for the first six months. This was a very hard time for me. The cell was only two meters by three meters, six feet by nine feet. It says there were no lights in the cell, and I only had one bowl of rice and salt a day. A piece of bamboo was stuck between my crossed legs and chained to the ground. My hands were chained to the ground behind my back. And whenever I had to go to the toilet, I was offered only a plastic bag. I felt totally deserted. I asked the Lord to take my life. It was too much for me. You can imagine the isolation of solitary confinement for months, deprived of the use of, of your spiritual gifts, your talents, your abilities, your skills. As a pastor, his one asset was his voice and an audience that would listen to him, and he was deprived of both. He was deprived of his legs as they began to atrophy from lack of use, as he lost even the ability to use them in the future. Everything he had, every gift Christ had given him, imagine the feeling of utter futility, the crushing weight of meaninglessness, being in an impossible situation where you cannot fix this, you cannot work it, there are no angles to maneuver. It's where all your God-given abilities can't help you one bit. I felt totally deserted. I asked God to take my life. It was too much for me. Some of you know what it's like to be in an impossible situation. Maybe it's with your health or with your employment or with your children or with your marriage. Perhaps it's in some relationship. Perhaps it's something about yourself that's out of control that you can't manage. And everything you have gives you no ability to do anything about it. You can't fix it. All your abilities can't help one bit. You know what it's like to feel deserted, to feel done, like it's over. It's too much. We're going to look at this passage in Matthew. It's one of the most famous passages of the Bible. It's in Matthew chapter 14, as we look at a group of people who were in that exact position. This is Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. If you want to look in the Pew Bible, it's page 1520, 1520. We're going to look at Matthew 14, verses 22 through 36. Hear now the gospel of Christ. Immediately, after feeding the 5,000, 
Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to Jesus and begged him to, 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 to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. It's the account of Jesus walking on water and Peter walking on water and Peter sinking in water and Jesus rescuing all of them. We're going to ask three questions. Uh, What does faith look like? What does faith really mean? And why is faith so difficult sometimes? And looking at Jesus, how is it possible to have the kind of faith that Peter had? First of all, what does faith look like? Faith means stepping out to trust Jesus in an impossible situation. Uh, You know, the other disciples saw Jesus walking on the water just like Peter did. They freaked out, said he was a ghost, but not Peter. Peter did something different. Peter did the crazy thing. Peter actually saw Jesus out in the sea, and he stepped down off of the boat, climbing down off of the boat. This isn't a little, you know, puddle jumper. This is a good-sized ship. This is seeing who can... Sea of Galilee is a, a pretty rough little sea. It's really just a big lake, but it gets some massive storms, and you don't take a rowboat into that. You take a big boat with oars and a whole lot of people on it in order to get across that kind of lake. And so Peter does the crazy thing. He actually gets down out of that boat and starts walking on the water, even though there's no flat surface. There's not a sheet of Lexan or glass just underneath to hold him up. He, in an impossible situation, he, he steps out. The trust in Jesus. And for Peter, faith meant seeing Jesus in the sea, stepping toward him, and trusting him. Uh, Faith can look like a lot of things. Faith can look like the spouse who commits to stay in an empty marriage, even though it's empty, and even though God doesn't seem to be changing the heart of his or her spouse. Faith can look like the guy who 
uh, suddenly starts writing checks to different organizations to support things, even though he worries that it may not, uh, it might undermine his own financial security, but he hears the voice of Jesus and he says, I'm going to trust you with my finances. Faith can look like the Arab Christian in Iraq or Syria, or the Assyrian Christian who, who says to the Islamic State extremist, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior, understanding that it may cost her her life or it may cost her even more. Faith is stepping out to trust Jesus with the impossible. Uh, faith also means looking at Jesus and not at the waves. Did you, do you know what the sea meant in the ancient world? The sea, it's not just that, I'm not going to allegorize the text and say, oh, you know, obviously the sea represents all of our problems, but, but that's actually what it did represent back then. Uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, you know, the sea, even in Babylonian religion, in Mesopotamian religion, the, the sea was, was Tiamat, the god of the sea. The sea was the god of chaos. Uh, in, in Greek, Thalassae, uh, uh, the personalized name of the sea, it represented everything that was chaotic, everything that was wrong in life, everything that was out of control. The sea represented uh, Creation run amok, the rumble and dread and panic that underlies our experience of this life. The sea is everything in the cosmos that is daunting and overwhelming, that threatens you and robs you of your security and shows us that our control is just a cheap illusion. And Peter, in the midst of this, looks at Jesus. But what happens when he then looks at the sea? What happens when he looks and focuses his attention on what's not right in this life? When he focuses on the problem? When he focuses on, on that which can't be controlled? When he's focusing his attention on, on all of the chaos and all of the turmoil? When he looks down and he takes regard of the sea and the waves, he begins to what? He begins to sink. And friends, if in the midst of chaos in this life, and some of you know it far better than I do, If you're focused on the chaos, Jesus is saying you're going to sink. Faith is looking at Jesus, not at the waves. Faith means stepping out to trust Jesus in an impossible situation. It means looking at Jesus and not looking at the waves. Because faith, friends, is not about the strength of your faith. It is about the direction of your faith. Peter gets out of the one thing that he knew perfectly well. Peter was a fisherman. Peter lived on boats. Peter knew that lake, and he knew the one thing that could get him across it. He knew that boat backwards and forwards. It was the tool of his trade. And as a fisherman, he was stepping out of the one thing he felt he could control, the one thing that would give him some leverage in life. He turned his back on it and stepped into the sea because he didn't know that that boat could get him across But he knew that Jesus was there and Jesus could save him whether his boat could or not. He figures Jesus is more reliable even than his boat, even than your career, even than your your money and your finances, even more reliable than your spouse, more reliable than your kids, more reliable than your job, more reliable than your good looks, more reliable than whatever it is that you rely on to give you leverage in this life to deal with the chaos and the pain and the suffering of the sea. Whatever it is, he turned his back on that because Jesus was there and Jesus was more reliable. His direction of his faith turned from his boat 
to his Savior, Jesus. Because what matters is not the strength of your faith, but its direction. Jesus said, if you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go be thrown into the sea, into the chaos, and it will be done. If that mustard seed of a tiny, weak, imperfect, wobbly faith is in Jesus, what matters is not its strength, but its direction. If you can imagine, you know, uh, uh, say you're in a video game, and in this video game, you and your buddy, you're going through all of this maze of things, and, and you end up going through this door, and the door shuts behind you, and it's a perfectly round room, and there are two doors. There's one door on this side and one door on that side, and right on the floor it says, the door has a fire-breathing dragon behind it. And you think, okay, we don't want to keep going this way. We need to get out. Which door did we come in? Came in that way, right? No, we we came in this way. Uh, Well, one of these doors is a fire-breathing dragon and incineration, and one of them is the way we came in, which we know we can still get out of. Okay, so which one do you go through? You and your buddy have a disagreement. One of you says... I, I think it's this door. I'm, I think we might have come in this one. I could be wrong, but I think it's this one. The other guy says, you're an idiot. It's this door. I know it's this door. We just walked through it. I was paying attention. I know what I'm talking about. This is the door that leads to salvation. I am certain. The other guy says, you might be right. You know, this door, it's, no, it could be this one. But they, they, finally, they just decide they're both going to open their doors. And on the count of three, one, two, three, this guy opens his door and a big plume of fire comes and incinerates him. Don't worry, it's a video game, kids. This door, the guy walks through and he he leads to salvation. Now, here's the question. You've heard this before. Which of them had stronger faith? The one who had stronger faith was the one over here. This guy's faith was weak. It was wobbly. It was inconsistent. It was filled with doubts and insecurities and worry that he might be wrong. This guy's faith was weak as water. But what matters is not the strength of your faith, but its direction. The guy over here had a really strong faith in the wrong thing, and it led to his destruction. The guy over here had a really weak faith in Jesus. Jesus, who's the door, who gets him to safety. What are you trusting in? What's the direction of your faith? Look at the the chaos in your life where things seem out of control and what do you grab a hold of? What do you latch on to? What do you look to to save you in the midst of the chaos? Are you still trying to row your way out of the chaos of this life? Are you still exhausting yourself, pounding the oars, trying to manage the storm? Are you still pounding them again and again and again in a frenzied hope that you'll somehow eventually safely reach the shore when Jesus is right there? Maybe your faith is strong. Maybe your faith is weak. But in whom is it placed? What do you trust in? Faith is... In Jesus means trusting him, not as a doctrinal statement, but a lived reality saying, Jesus, I'm trusting in you, not well, not strongly, but you better be who you said you were, Jesus of Nazareth, because all my eggs are in your basket, and if you can't save me, then no one can. I'm not holding back any chips for myself, whether I sink or float. I'm all in. My destiny is latched to you, to your word. Faith means stepping out to trust Jesus with the impossible. It means looking at Jesus, not at the waves, because what matters is not the strength of your faith, friends, but its direction. That's what faith is. So why is faith so difficult for us? Did you notice the timetable of this passage? 
okay, they fed the 5,000, getting sort of toward evening. The disciples all get in the boat. They start rowing, and then Jesus goes up on a mountain. He takes a hike. He climbs to the top of a hill, and he has about an eight-hour prayer session, and then walks back down and then starts walking across the water to catch up with the boat. Uh, you know, the progress at this point, it says they've traveled about two miles in ten hours. They've been rowing this boat nonstop against the wind, against the waves for 10 hours. That works out to about 18 feet per minute. It's two steps forward and one step back. They're not really making much progress. And they've been going at it again and again and again, trying to use the thing that they trust in, the thing that they know, the thing that gives them leverage, and it's not working. And they've been out on that water rowing nonstop, I mean, talk about a real workout. This is a long day at the gym. Ten hours of rowing. Here's the question. Why did Jesus wait so long to go get them? Because we're not going to see and trust Jesus until we realize that we can't fix it ourselves. We can't fix the storm. We can't fix even ourselves. I don't need to row harder. I don't need to row faster. You don't need to row better. You need a rescuer. We've got to be stripped of our self-reliance. This, this, means that, 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 this means that Jesus wants us to experience our helplessness. He sent them out there to break them of what they thought gave them leverage in this life. Without that sense of, of true desperation without Jesus... Faith isn't really ready to grow inside of us. We can't trust in ourselves and trust in Jesus. It's our self-reliance that must fail us. And our self-reliance must fail us completely. And then Jesus looks like good news. And evidently it took about nine and a half hours for them to get to that point. Because that's when Jesus went out and collected them. Uh, if you can imagine, uh, illustrate this, uh, you can imagine, that's what I've used before, uh, imagine you've thrown a beautiful party in your backyard, and you have invited all of these wonderful, lovely people. They're tall and tan and young and lovely, and all of them have stemware in their hands, and there's beautiful music going in the back, and you've got the little paper lanterns with their glow, and, and you know, all these wonderful hors d'oeuvres, and everybody's having quiet conversation. You've, you've flown in this, you know, bossa nova band, uh, so it's kind of like a... And then something happens. There's screams, there's glasses, things are pounding. Everybody's running which way. There's this huge wind whips up, the sky turns black. Then there are spotlights and there are people yelling and you're seeing guns and some guy grabs you and he throws you over his shoulder and he pushes you up and says, get in the helicopter, you're coming with us. And you think this has ruined my party. And the band is on their way back to Brazil. Now imagine it this way. Imagine you are stuck in the western suburbs of Mogadishu 
And there are Al-Shabaab militants hunting you down like a dog. And they are not going to kill you softly with their song. They're going to chop your head off once they get you. And there are teams of them everywhere. There are snipers up crawling across the roofs looking for you. They've got dogs who can scent you. You're hearing the dogs get louder. You're seeing shadows coming from this way, shadows coming from that way. But suddenly some guy with a big old, big old Arabian sword comes and he's grabbing you by the hair and then the sky gets really dark and glass breaks and, and you see spotlights and you hear screams and people are running every which way and some guy comes and grabs hold of you and throws you over his shoulder and shoves you upward and says, get into the helicopter, you're coming with us. What's the difference? The difference is the second time you knew you needed rescuing. If you know you need a rescuer, faith in Jesus is really easy because he's all you got. But until you know you need a rescuer, faith is going to be very, very difficult. Often we don't want to need a rescuer. It, it hits my pride to think I need a rescuer. I want to be able to do it myself. I don't want to be so jacked up and such a mess that I need somebody to come from the outside to rescue my body and soul. But once you know that's where you are, then if somebody grabs you and throws you over his shoulder and Jesus shoves you into his helicopter and says, you're coming with me, then that's really, really good news. I heard one speaker talk about this passage in the context of the art world. Uh, During the Italian Renaissance, for example, uh, you know, there were thousands of works of art, uh, you know, tempura and you know, you know, artwork, oils, everything, you name it, just of, of, of every passage in the Bible. So many Madonnas and Childs, so many Annunciations to Mary of the coming of Jesus, so many crucifixions, so many resurrection scenes, everything was covered except this one passage is very, very rarely depicted uh, in the artwork of the Renaissance. Uh, there was one kind of early, early Renaissance. Giotto evidently did this passage in in St. Peter's, um, but it didn't show Peter sinking, and it was later destroyed when they renovated St. Peter's. We only have Giorgio Vasari's copy of it. Luis Borasa in 1411 did a tempura in Spain, but that's really pre-Renaissance in Spain at least. Conrad Witz did an oil on wood in, in the 1400s in Germany, but that's still late medieval um, you know, Masaccio uh, evidently did a fresco in the Brancacci Chapel in Florence of it, but it's been lost. There's really one that we've got that's truly Renaissance, really late Renaissance. It's by Scarsolino. Uh, it's really mannerist, very late Italian Renaissance, 1585 oil on campus. I don't know if you've got a picture of it. Do we have, did we get the picture in this week? I don't know if we did. Yeah, here it is. Uh, and it's, it's Peter, and his faith has wavered. He's sinking, and Jesus is reaching down, um, and pulling him out of the sea. The disciples, you know, were um, um, Tyrolean. Um, and uh, that's actually Lake Geneva in the background, believe it or not, I believe. But, uh, and of course, they, weren't, they were Jewish. They were much darker than that. But, but it is, it's interesting. This one thing of Peter, the guy who holds the keys of the kingdom, the guy who was the first bishop of Rome, theoretically, probably, 
maybe. The guy who, who was certainly the leader in the book of Acts of all of the apostles, uh, who Jesus said on this, I will build my church. Uh, Jesus is having to drag him out of the water because his faith is weak. But it's in Jesus. Um, why is it such a rare subject? Um, why do we not want this on our wall? Why does the church during the Renaissance, during the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, not make this image central in the cathedrals of Southern Europe? Um, you know, Peter is us. Peter is the church. And we don't like for people to see us fail. The church has never particularly liked people to see us fail. I, as a pastor, don't particularly like people to see me fail. I don't want you to see my wavering, quivering faith. I want you to see me as the big, strong hero who has all the answers, who stands strong in the Lord as a pillar of faith, an oak of righteousness, committed without failure. Adam Jones says it this way. Uh, He says, we're no different than this. That's one painting of our lives that we don't want anyone to see. We don't want anyone to see us failing, to see us sinning, to see us falling apart, to see us not trusting God. It's one thing we never want anyone to know. Yet to truly embrace the gospel, it's the one painting of your life that people in your family need to see. People in your work, people in your community group, people in this church, it's the one painting of your life they most need to see. They need to see us in our weakness, in our failures, in our sinking, and in our crying out to Jesus, being rescued by him. You will never know the wonder of the gospel until you're constantly bringing to Jesus the canvas of your life and saying, here, Jesus, here is my life. Paint the cross here. Stripped of our self-reliance. Honest about the fact that we're sinking and that we can't fix ourselves. That we don't need a religious teacher. We need a rescuer. That we don't need instruction. We need rescue. That's a picture of the gospel. That's Jesus rescuing the church, rescuing you, rescuing me in our weakness of faith because that's the kind of Savior we have. Thank you. Dan Allender applies this to parenting. He says this about parenting. He says, we must confess the sin of our profound self-centeredness. It's one thing to nod our heads to the fact It's a whole other reality to confess that we can't attend a piano recital, a soccer match, a parent-teacher conference, or a church service without the loathsome color of our self-centeredness being the first presence that enters the room. He says this, he says, I can't watch your child score a goal at a lacrosse game and truly rejoice for your child when my son, the goalie, has been scored on twice by your kid, thereby denying, you know, it's, it's, you know, He says, I'm angry at the defensive player who didn't block the shooter. I'm angry at the coach who doesn't yell enough. And frankly, I'm not thrilled with a school system that makes lacrosse a club sport and not a school-sponsored team, thereby denying the lacrosse players the advantage of more coaches, equipment, or training. And when you get right down to it, I'm ticked at my wife's family for not adding more athletic genes to my children's gene pool. (laughs) Yeah, who's that all about, your kid? Are you 
so much energy that we, that we pour into a child. But when in, in reality, so much energy that we pour into ourselves needing to be the kind of parent we want to be, the kind of winner that we want to be, it can be all about us. It can become one vast project of trying to justify myself through my child or through my career or through my relationships or through my family. You know, not for their sake, but for mine, to prove myself that I am a somebody, you know, to, to look at the kind of kids I can raise, look at the kind of career I can have, look at the kind of house I can buy. But the loathsome color of our self-sitterness, he says, being the first presence in the room. When you know that, friends, when you feel that, when you, you, you see the constant mixed motives in your own soul and you're frustrated with it, you hate it, that's when you know you need rescuing, not just once, but continually being rescued by Jesus. Faith is looking at Jesus for the impossible and it is knowing that he is going to rescue you. Why does Jesus leave his disciples alone in the storm for 10 hours? Because it took them nine and a half hours to realize they needed a rescue. By then, Peter knew his boating skills couldn't save him. By then, he knew he needed Jesus. We have to come to the end of ourselves. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, when we come to the end of self, we come to the beginning of Jesus Christ. That last shekel binds us to the pretenders, but absolute bankruptcy sets us free to go to Jesus who heals diseases without money and without price. Glad enough I am, he said, when I meet with a man who is starved out of self-sufficiency. Welcome, brother. Now you're ready for Jesus. When all your own virtue is gone out of you, then shall you seek and find that virtue which comes out of Jesus. God uses the storm to get us outside of ourselves and into Christ so that we need him so that we're ready for rescue. Now, how is it possible to have the kind of faith that Peter had here? First of all, you've got to realize who Jesus is. Uh, Peter did. Did you notice what he did when he realized he was sinking? Uh, you know, the boat is right behind him. Jesus is ways away. And what does he grab onto once he realizes, oh my gosh, this isn't working. I'm going down. I'm going under. You can almost imagine, better than the picture here, of him kind of going down once and then getting his head up. And he's going to go down for the count. And he's got a boat right here that he could grab. But what does he do instead? He doesn't grab this boat that's probably filled with rescue equipment that he's relied on a million times. He cries out to Jesus. And instead of swimming back to the boat... Uh, there's no turning back here. It's something incredibly beautiful. He cries out to Christ. Uh, and sure, real faith in Jesus is a lot like Peter's faith. It involves doubt and wavering and sinking and failing. But even in the midst of failure, faith knows where to look for rescue. It says to Jesus, I know who you are. I realize, Jesus, that you are the Lord, that you are the one that came from God. I know who you are, Lord. You are Jesus. You are the Christ. And when the rest of the people on the boat saw what Jesus did, how he rescued Peter, how he then stilled the storm, when they saw that, they knew who he was and they worshipped him. They knew, Jesus, you are not a ghost. You are the Son of God. You are the Lord of creation. You are the author of life. They saw who Jesus is and they saw what he could do. They saw Jesus could overpower the waves. He dominates the sea. He dominates Tiamat. He dominates the chaos of life. And he brings peace just by walking on it. 
He's the one who can overcome the chaos of life, all that's uncontrollable, the terror of creation run amok, the rumble and dread and panic that underlies that experience of this life, all that's daunting and overwhelming that threatens us and robs us of security. These things are nothing to him. The sea, and all it represents, ultimately obeys him. They know who he is. They know what he can do. Though high and holy and worthy of worship, God the Son stoops down and rescues a guy with wavering faith because he knows Peter by name. He knows you by name. He takes note of you. And he will rescue you when in your weak and imperfect faith you cry out to him. Tiamat, subdued. Thalate, dethroned. Chaos, made peace. It's what we see at the end of the Bible. Weird little detail the end of the book of Revelation, when it's talking about the renewed creation, the world renewed and transformed and made the way it ought to be with God at his center, and it has this little obscure little reference in Revelation, says, and there was no more sea. And we think, well, snap, I like going to the beach. But to them, it's an image, and to them that meant no more chaos, no more turmoil, no more defeat. Jesus Christ on his throne, the righteousness of God filling the earth as the, as the waters cover the sea, the peace of God making everything universally to flourish, the goodness of God bringing the peace of God because Jesus has walked on the water and made it still. We see who Jesus is. We see what he can do. And when you feel what it cost him, you can believe. What did it cost Jesus to rescue Peter and his friends? Well, he had to walk out onto the water, and he had to go grab them and probably got his feet wet. But no, there's more than this, because this is not just them being rescued at that moment in that sea. Jesus is painting a picture of his purpose here. What would it cost him? to reverse all the disintegration, to reintegrate the world, to bring an end to the chaos that the sea represented, to remove the curse of God from humanity and the earth, to reverse the fall and to restore a damaged creation, to forgive rebels like me, rebels like us, to cleanse the church and to help her to believe, to heal us of our diseases, to heal us of our sins and our brokenness and our shame. What would it cost him to forgive our debts, to to carry them himself, to cover our shame and clothe us in his righteousness. What it would take, friends, is him going to the cross in which he would actually carry your burden for you so that he could bless you in his own place. The purpose of God to make everything right at the cost of Jesus facing all of the chaos, all of the hell, all of the burden, all of the curse of God, taking it and absorbing the chaos inside himself, letting it crush him, and then bursting forth in resurrection power, coming alive as a conqueror. Christ our victor, Christ our hero, who has fought our enemy for us and has slain the beast. This, friends, is the good news of Jesus. Back to that pastor in Vietnam. You can think back to his despair, being chained for six months, being completely alone with no one to speak to, no leverage in life, no ability to use his gifts or his abilities to address the situation, praying and asking God, saying, God, I want you to take my life. 
I don't want to be alive anymore. He says, I prayed a lot, and I asked God to take my life, and he did not do that. He continues, one night in my prison cell, chained to the ground, I saw a vision of the Lord Jesus. He did not speak a word to me. He just placed his hand on me, and I felt how new strength filled my body. I cried. I repented before the Lord. And then I knew that the Lord Jesus was saying to me that he would not allow me to leave this world defeated, that when he takes me home, he would take me home in victory. The very next morning, the police came and took me to another cell, not in isolation. It was months, it was almost a year before his legs could walk again. And it was two years before he was released. And when he was released, he found that not only had he led several hundred inmates to Jesus in faith, but that everywhere he had ministered, a church was planted. And one of those that he had led to faith himself had begun a new church. He saw the power and the victory of God, even in the midst of tears. In the late 19th century, Horatio Spafford was a prominent lawyer, a senior partner in a large and thriving Chicago law firm. In 1861, he married a Norwegian girl named Anna Larsen, and the Spaffords were well-known in 1860s Chicago. Spafford invested in real estate on the north side of the expanding Chicago in the spring of 1871, and in the October of that year when the Great Fire of Chicago reduced the city to ashes, It also destroyed nearly all of Spafford's sizable investment. Two years later, in 1873, Spafford decided that his family should take a holiday. They were going to England. He himself ended up getting delayed at the last minute because of business, and so he sent his his wife and his four daughters ahead, uh, 11-year-old Annie and 9-year-old Maggie and 5-year-old Bessie and little 2-year-old Tanetta. On November 22nd of 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on the steamship Ville de Havre, their ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel. As the ship began taking on water, Anna huddled together with her four little girls and held on to them for dear life. And when the ship lurched and sank into the sea, 226 people lost their lives. Anna was found floating, unconscious, but alive by a British rescue ship. But she lost all four of her little girls. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to Spafford beginning with two words, saved alone. Horatio then got on a ship to sail to England to collect his wife. And as the ship's captain notified him that they were going over the location where his daughter's While aboard that ship, Horatio Spafford composed the words of a hymn. The music, written by Philip Bliss, was named after the ship on which Spafford's daughters died, the Ville du Havre. But the words Spafford wrote on that sea were these. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials shall come, 
let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back like a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are one who is able to calm the storm, to walk on water, to bring us powerfully and safely to the other side. And so we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and and this cup, Lord, that you might minister to us the gospel and remind us anew, meet with us in this place and draw our eyes away from the storm to you in the midst of the storm who come, who accept, who heal, restore, and save. Amen.